All right, well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. That's where we're going to spend our time uh, this morning. In Acts chapter 14, we're looking at verses 8 through 20, this uh, great text, this, this great story. And, and as you're turning there, I simply want to uh, read for you from uh, this book by Ken Ham called Gospel Reset. Just want to read for you parts of the introduction of this book because it helps really to set up what's taking place in Acts chapter 14. Ham writes, Something is happening to America, in fact, to the entire once Christianized Western world. Whether you get your news from television or online, the information is the same. The United States is no longer the country she once was. It is shocking to compare the worldview of today's generation with the once embraced by older generations in the West. America has the largest number of Christian churches, colleges, seminaries, resources, and media of any nation in the world. Yet her values and predominant worldview demonstrate that America is becoming less Christian every day. Western culture is changing. In fact, Western civilization it, as a whole, is becoming less Christian in its worldview, whether it's the United Kingdom, Europe, or Australia. We are seeing moral relativism spread throughout Western culture like an infectious disease. There's even talk that an ideological civil war is being waged in America, and as moral relativism enjoys greater national acceptance, Christians and their worldview are treated with increasing intolerance. The elimination of prayer and the Bible from state schools was only the beginning. Now Christians themselves are being targeted for the free exercise of their faith in the public square. Nativity scenes, Ten Commandments, and crosses have been systematically and progressively removed from public places. Even the terminology associated with Christian teaching is being changed or removed. For example, Merry Christmas is changed to Happy Holidays. In short, Christianity's influence is slowly being purged from America's national conscience. Simultaneously, Christians are not having an impact on culture and those in it, choosing instead to remain content and safe with their own churches and Christian circles. We are not imparting the gospel in a way the next generation can grasp. Of course, the message of the gospel hasn't changed, but it's the way people think has changed dramatically. Therefore, we must speak the truth of Scripture in the language of culture. Now, there's no doubt there's a widening chasm between the older generation and the millennials in America. The older generation, even those who aren't Christian, have more of a Christianized worldview because of the significant past influence of Christianity. Today's younger generation do not have such a worldview because their thinking has been secularized through education and culture. This, then, is the divide we're seeing. Understanding the difference between these worldviews is an essential first step to having an impact on this generation with the gospel. And here's the crux of this, verse, of this book. He says in Acts 2, people preached to the Jews. Well, in Acts 17, and Acts 14 we're going to look at today is much like Acts 17. In Acts 17 or Acts 14, Paul preached to Greeks. Their approaches were different based upon the worldview of their audiences. The Jews in Acts 2 believed, thought, and viewed their world from a Jewish perspective. They already knew and understand what the Bible teaches about creation, <clears throat> sin, and other topics. However, the Greeks in Acts 17 and in Acts 14 did not have a foundational knowledge of the biblical teachings on creation or on other matters. America as a culture, in fact, the entire Western world, used to be like the Jews in this respect, but that's no longer the case. Our culture has declined, having become more and more like the Greeks. Well, this morning, right, we're going to see as we've worked through the, the, the book of Acts, For this past year and a half, we have seen predominantly ministry to Jewish people. Predominantly ministry in the synagogues. When when God was assumed and the scriptures were upheld as authoritative. But here in Acts chapter 14, we're going to see Paul and Barnabas encounter a new culture. It's a different culture that, that does not have the scriptures to guide them. That does not have the knowledge of God to restrain them. Much like our society and our culture today. And the culture I'm talking about is the ancient culture of the Greeks as found in Lystra. And Paul brings the good news to this culture that doesn't know God. And I think that we would do well to understand how, God, how Paul brings the gospel to these people because they're like our, our culture in many ways. The title of my message this morning is, 
we bring you good news because that's exactly what Paul did uh, with those in Lystra. He, he brought them good news. And our text begins in Lystra. You can just even see it there. Acts chapter 14 and verse 8. Now at Lystra. Now, um, Paul and Barnabas are visiting this city. They are on their first missionary journey. And Lystra, if you know, it's a, it's a very small village built on a, a, a hill, maybe 100 feet high or so. Um, it's really off the beaten path. It's away from the significant trade routes. Um, if you're looking for a modern parallel, you might just look someplace in the boondocks. Say just someplace deep Arkansas or deep Missouri. And here comes Paul and Barnabas to this little village with the gospel. And how good it is of us to see that even insignificant towns are worthy to be visited with the gospel of Christ. No place is too small for the Lord to visit that land. And they visit here, little Lystra. And again, I just want to remind you of how they, they got there. And if I remind you enough, you're going to never forget it. All right, This map of the first missionary journey, which begins there in Antioch of Syria. And then they travel down. Where are they going next? What city? Help me now. What city are they going to next? Seleucia. Right there. And then where are they going next? Silent. Right across to Salamis. Right across to the island of Cyprus. And then where do they go next? They travel right through the island of Paphos. And where do they go next? They go north to Perga. You're exactly right. And they land at Perga in Pamphylia. And then where do they go? Continue to go north to Antioch. And then where are they going to go? East to Iconium. And then once they reach Iconium, then they're going to travel down to Lystra. And this little town is, uh, is where we're going to spend our time. It's about 25 miles south of, of Iconium. And we're going to pick up the story. And it's a, it's a great story. If you just even right there, Acts chapter 14, verse 8 says, At Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul, as he looked intently at him, saw that he had faith be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And the crowds, when they saw what happened, they, they, they lifted their voices, saying in Lyconium, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple is at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and want to offer sacrifice for the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you the good news that, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And then the astonishing thing comes right there in verse 18. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Now the first thing we see here in Lystra is we see a lame man healed, or as I have put it, a lame man springs up. Because that's what happens. We're introduced to this man in verse 8. Now at Lystra, there's a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. It seems as Luke, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, wants us to know beyond a shadow of doubt this man's medical condition. Luke was a physician, so it makes sense. And this man's condition is totally helpless. Three things. He could not use his feet. From birth, he was crippled. And he had never, ever, ever walked. Good to get an idea, kind of a picture of this man. Now, he didn't look like this at all, but that may be what he looked like there with the crippled legs, down, very diminutive, just sitting there on the ground. Obviously a needy person. He was probably begging as the only thing that people with shriveled up legs could do back then. They couldn't have computer skills or office skills so much. They couldn't work remote. They had to just sit out in the public square and beg have this picture here on the overhead here of an older man because he was just identified as a man. He wasn't a young man. We don't know how old he was, but he'd been there a long time. And I suspect in this little village of Lystra that there are many people who knew this man. And he was in the public square, probably brought by his friends, 
to be there. He'd beg all day, and then they'd take him home at night to care for them. And we see in verse 9 that this man was listening to Paul speaking. Now, it's worth noting here that when Paul and Barnabas come into Lystra, where do they normally go? They normally go into the, the synagogues, right? Always. And yet here they don't go into the synagogue. You say, why didn't they go to the synagogue in Lystra? There isn't one. Exactly right. There, there's no synagogue there. And so he just is right there in the public square. He begins speaking. And the lame man is listening to Paul's preaching. And uh, Paul discerned a little bit about this man receiving the message. And as I preach, you know, week in, week out, I can tell there are some times where people are really engaged with me and sometimes they're not. Sometimes the eyes are sleepy and the head are nodding. And sometimes they're just kind of like, whatever, looking at the watch. But sometimes, right, there's a gaze that's right on me. And I say, you know what? They're getting it. And that's what Paul knew here. He, verse 9 says that this man right, was listening to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him. And, and Paul could discern his faith, that he had faith to be made well. And that's why he said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And then he sprang up and he began walking. Now, those of you who are familiar with the Bible recognize this miracle because it's done before. Jesus did this miracle. In fact, he did it on several occasions. One was at the pool of Bethesda. There are many invalids who sat by this pool. They're waiting for the waters to stir, believing that if, if they could be the first in the waters, that they will be healed of their, uh, of their problem. And there was a man there who sat there for 38 years. And he said, I, I, I can't get in the pool fast enough. And Jesus said to him, you want to be healed? He says, I can't get there fast enough. And Jesus says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And he at once, the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. You can read all about it in John chapter 5. It's a great story. That was one time. Jesus, on another occasion, was in Capernaum. That pool of Bethesda is in Jerusalem. And, and uh, the pool uh, in Capernaum was, was way up north. And uh, there, he was packed together in this room and and uh, so much so that it was standing room only, and, and there was this man who was a paralytic, and he was brought by four of his friends on a, on a cot and a bed, and they, they could not enter the door because it was too crowded. And so they entered in through the roof. I mean, you just imagine that, right? Coming through the, the roofs were different back then, right? Couldn't get through this roof except he had a mighty chainsaw or something to get through this roof. But he, he got it through the roof, lowered him right down through the roof right in front of Jesus as he was teaching and there was some dialogue back and forth. We can look at that another time. We have looked at it before on several occasions. But Jesus basically said to this man, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately and picked up his bed and, and went out before them all. So they're all amazed and glorifying God and, and said, never have we seen anything like this. And I just say, I've never seen anything like this as well. Where lame men are healed instantly, they, they pick up their beds and they, they walk away healed. But that's the power of Jesus, and that's the whole point. You can read about that in, in Mark chapter 2. But Jesus wasn't the only one to do such a miracle. The book of Acts, we've seen Peter do this. Remember Acts chapter 3, when Peter and John went up to the temple to, to pray along the way, they met a lame beggar at the, the beautiful gate who was asking for alms, alms for the poor, alms for the poor, alms for the poor. And uh, asking for donations just to provide for his daily food and his daily need. And Peter, again, fixed his gaze on him, just like Paul did. Fixed his gaze on him. He said, look at us. And the beggar did. He was expecting some money, but he received far better. Here's Acts chapter 3, 6 through 8. I have no silver and gold, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. How many of you remember when I preached this passage about a year and a half ago? You remember? Like, right? What did I do? I, I did my Michael Jordan imitation on that Sunday. Right? I was here and I just wanted to show you how he was leaping and praising God. And I just said, yeah, I still got the hops. At age 53 then, I still have my hops. And uh, he was just leaping and praising God. Totally cured. Right? And he went from not being able to walk at all, needing friends to tell, help him into the temple to beg, to being able to dunk. Right? He, he could just get up. It's the, the sort of uh, sign and wonder that we encounter in the Bible. The ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the book of Acts. So even last week when we saw in the book of Iconium 
Verse 3, so they remained a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders being done by their hands. This is the kind of signs and wonders that was being done by the hands of the apostles. Just unbelievable sorts of things. Undeniable, verifiable, instantaneous acts of God, unlike anything that we experience today. Here's a guy known by his hometown, lame from birth, hearing a message of a stranger, and rising up and walking. And that's what we see in our text as well. We see instantaneous, verifiable, undeniable acts of God. Verse 10, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. You know, lots of miracles were taking place at that moment. New tissue being created in his legs. New muscles being formed. Giving him the spring to stand up and walk. The coordination to be able to walk. This word translated sprang up is similar to what... Uh, Luke used in chapter 3, verse 8, where he says he was leaping. But when he's leaping, it's like more, like he was extra leaping. And so that's where he was like really off the ground. Here he just sprang up. He had a kind of hop in his step, but he wasn't like, like jumping up and down was the only difference. But it's the same, uh, same cognate of the word. Similarly, we, we see a similarity of a gaze. Remember in chapter 3 that, that Peter looked at this man right, and they locked eyes as who he's going to heal. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 9, we see Paul's attention, fixing his gaze upon the man, right? Same word, just looking at that. And Paul discerned that this man had faith to be made well. Literally, in verse 9, we read this, fixing his gaze upon him and seeing that he had faith to be saved. Now, we hear this word saved, and we instantly think about spiritual salvation, which is, which is correct, right? When you believe in Jesus and your faith is placed upon him and his work on the cross, we can be saved from our sin, we can be saved to be with Christ forever, to be one of His disciples, to follow Him, accepted into His kingdom. You can be saved from your sins, totally right. And yet here, the word saved is much more holistic. That's why it's translated um, that He had faith to be made well. That is, His body would be saved. His body would be redeemed. He'd be restored to be able to provide for Himself. That's shown in this miracle, right? The man can get up and walk. And yet, don't miss the, faith, the, the role of faith in this healing process. It's not that you have faith, you're automatically healed. It's not that. But basically, it's faith to trust God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And, and though it isn't stated here, I, I have no doubt this man was believing in Jesus. Because as Paul was preaching, he's preaching in the public square about Jesus. This man was believing what he was saying. And it's by the name of Jesus, the power of Jesus, that Peter gave the man uh, ability to walk. And so I believe here also that, that stand up and walk. And Paul could have said in the name of Jesus. And perhaps that was a greater miracle that took place in this man's life, his faith in Jesus, more than his body being healed. I, I say that because of how the crowd responded. Like, this crowd is sub, such a superstitious crowd, such, a, such a, a crowd like our society today, how many people have never even heard the name of Jesus before. Yeah, I've heard stories of even uh, people coming into homes of, of, of our church, right? Just well, kids, they had never heard the name of Jesus before. Have no category for that because that's what our, our world is like. And this guy had no category for Jesus at all, as we're going to see that this culture did. But they, they heard Paul's message and how they responded. If you look, they responded in worship of the gods. I'm going to call this, right? A lame man springs up and a crowd is stirred up. Verses 11 through 13. Look at here. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice for the crowds. Now to us, this is strange, is it not? To have someone come in and, and do a miracle and then be lifted up as a, as a god... Does this sound strange to any of you? Maybe it just sounds strange to me, all right? Don't, don't leave me hanging up here. I, I think it sounds strange, strange to me. And, and even for them, like, look what they say. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. When do we celebrate gods coming down in the likeness of men? When do we? Like, it's Christmas, right? This is Christmas for them, 
right? But rather than the Almighty God coming down to us, Jesus Christ coming down from us, from whom He created all things and every inch of the universe is His because He made all things and everything is for Him. Him, Jesus Christ coming down to us. That's Christmas. And here the gods have come down to us. It's Christmas, the gods coming in the flesh. They even identified them. Here the first one, the, the pantheon, they called Zeus. This was Barnabas was Zeus. You guys know who Zeus is in the pantheon? Who is he? Lightning and thunder, right? He's the king of the gods. Exactly right. He is the god of the gods. His Roman name, you know his Roman name? Jupiter is his Roman name. He, he assigns roles to all the other gods. Like, like this, if there would be God the Father Almighty of the, the pantheon, this would be the one. This is Zeus. This is God Almighty. They, they thought Barnabas was God Almighty. Some might say that was Bruce, but that's, that's who it was, right? But here's Paul. Then he's called Hermes. Do you know who Hermes is? Huh? He's the messenger, right? He's got, he's got the wings on his, on, his, uh, on his ankles. He can move quickly. In fact, he moves quickly between the worlds. Between the worlds of the gods, the divine, and the worlds of the human. Anyone know? What's his, uh, um, what's his Roman name? Mercury. Mercury. Good. He was a soul guide, by the way. He was a conductor of souls into the afterlife. Does it make sense now? Why Paul is called Hermes, the director of the soul into the afterlife? It means that the things that Paul was talking about, they, they discerned he's talking about the afterlife. He's talking about after you die. He's talking about your sins and, and how to deal and how to, how to go to heaven after this, this life. And he was the one with the power to heal. So you can see this divine... He's talking about things in the afterlife. But isn't this still strange, though? Even though you might believe that, like, instantly to think that these people are, are gods. I mean, if someone would come upon us and do an instantaneous, verifiable, undeniable act of God, right? Just some crazy miracle that would be like, whoa, you know, like a, a, a layman walking or something like that. Or maybe Heather's leg restored, right? Just done, right? Like, whoa! What would we do? Would we say, oh, Zeus and Hermes? Would we even say, oh, God's come in the flesh, Jesus visits us? Would we say that? We wouldn't say that just because our categories are so different. We wouldn't worship the one who performed the heal. Maybe we would say, oh, that's a prophet of God. We need to listen to what he says. But it's because we are so steeped in the Bible, right? So steeped in a Christian perspective that if someone would come, that's how we would respond because of our background. But with the Roman pantheon of God, pantheon of gods, those in Lystra would respond differently. When they saw an act of God, they understood it as from one of their gods. And they understood their gods coming in the flesh. And so they acted accordingly. But still there's something a bit unsettling about this. Why, why are these people so quick to identify Barnabas as Zeus and Paul as Hermes? Especially the priest of Zeus is right in town. His temple's at the entrance to the city. You'd think if anybody would know and identify Zeus, he would be the guy. And he wasn't a very good priest because he didn't identify Zeus if he said Barnabas is Zeus because Barnabas really isn't Zeus. So he was, he's a false, whatever, priest, whatever. Why are they so quick? Well, here's a little bit of advice for you all, all right? And take this deep into your, your heart. If you don't understand what somebody is doing, it may just be because you don't have all the facts. As a pastor, it's very interesting. As I, as I counsel with people, some, there are times I'm just confused. And I ask a question, I'm confused. Because it's interesting, as a pastor, people coming to me for counsel will only tell me the part of the story that they want to tell me. But then maybe when I hear something else, I'm like, oh, that's why. In fact, I, I remember uh, uh, years past, <clears throat> talking to a high school-age boy. And uh, we got around talking about a lot of things. He was having problems with his parents. And so I was talking to him, trying to help resolve some things. And, and he just had this entitled mentality. Entitled mentality about his car and, and about his phone. I tried to explain those are privileges. Don't you know that those are just privileges? And he said, no, no, I got this. And I kind of just got nowhere. And then only later I find out his phone was how he could talk with his drug dealer to get his drugs. If I'd have known that, then my counseling would have gone. He wasn't going to tell me that. I need my phone because I need to talk with my, my drug dealer. And that's why, why he's causing all these problems with his parents. And I need my car to go get my drugs. But, of course, he didn't tell me that. But I didn't understand because I just didn't have enough information. 
But I just say, I found many things in that life, in this life like that as a pastor. And, and you mothers and fathers, right? Something's going on with your kids you don't quite understand. Just dig deep. Dig deeper, right? If you don't understand, there's something else going on. You just don't understand. So dig deeper. And now when it comes here, the response of these people, on the one hand, right, we can totally understand their faith in the pantheon, but there's some details strange to us. Why are they so quick? Well, if you dig deeper, and uh, if you maybe pull out a commentary and just say, hey, maybe, maybe some help might help me. This is really strange. And so I just got John Stott's commentary here, and this, this commentary is nothing special. Almost every commentary I read this week has got this story in it. That's just some extra biblical perspective that helps gives us some light on this, uh, this culture. Let me just read for you from what John Stott says, which I help, hope will open up what's going on here. It says, The crowd's superstitious and even fanatical behavior is hard to comprehend, but some local background throws light on it. About 50 years previously, the Latin poet Ovid had narrated in his Metamorphosis an ancient local legend. The supreme god Jupiter, whose other name is Zeus to the Greeks, and his son Mercury, who's also Hermes, once visited the hill country of Phrygia. Okay, if we look at Phrygia, where's Phrygia? Phrygia is close by here, right? Do you see Phrygia? Kids, maybe on your notes, you can circle that. Once visited this close by place, right? Once visited Phrygia. Let's see where to go. And these guys, Zeus and Hermes, came down disguised as mortal men, so the legend goes. And then incognito, they sought hospitality, but were rebuffed a thousand times. And at last, however, they were offered lodging in a tiny cottage thatched with straw and reeds from the march. And they live here lived an elderly peasant couple called Philemon and Bacchus. Not the Philemon of the Bible. But these two, this couple, this poor couple, entertained them out of their poverty. And later the gods rewarded them, but destroyed by flood the homes which would not take them in. It is reasonable to suppose that both Lystran people knew this story about their neighborhood, and that if the gods were to revisit their district, they were anxious not to suffer the same fate as the inhospitable Phrygians. Apart from their literary evidence in Ovid, it also then talks about some inscriptions have been found in Lystra, talking about Zeus and Hermes were worshipped together as local patron deities. So that just kind of helps helps to like unlock this a little bit, to understand. You could have understood it without that perspective, but now with that perspective, you just begin to get a little bit why they were so quick. And basically, right, self-preservation. I don't want my house flooded, therefore I'm going to worship these guys. And I'm going to like offer sacrifice to them, bring on the oxen, bring on the garlands. Let's, let's have at it. Well, how did Paul and Barnabas respond? We, we see that in verses 14 to 17. We see that they cry out. Now, at, at first, Paul and Barnabas didn't understand what was happening. All this frenzy around them. And all they could discern was this kindness that was, was coming upon them, right? Maybe they had these, these garlands placed upon their necks. Maybe they were given things to eat. Maybe they were offered a, a place in some, some, some place to sit down and rest, right? Where maybe if it's hot out, they were going to be fanned by slate. We don't, we don't know, but they were, they were somehow just experienced that. Because when the lame man was healed, this uproar among the people, they were excited. And uh, they, they heard speaking. They didn't understand the language, right? Because Paul, they understood the Greek. But Paul and Barnabas didn't understand the local Lyconian. And this, this happens when I go uh, overseas. So many people in the world understand English. I can communicate on an English level, but there's also their tribal language. Or there's also their national language, which I don't know, but they can talk about that, and that's what's happening. That Greek was the language of like English all across the world. And those in Lystra could understand his Greek, but they couldn't understand their Lyconian. Now, I looked up, I tried to find what is Lyconian for the gods that come down to us in the likeness of men. I didn't know, so I made something up, okay? But just, just pretend that this is Lyconian, okay? Alibani komi lakimani. Alibani komi lakimani. Alibani komi lakimani, right? And they're like, just use this thing. You're like, oh, okay, maybe that's a praise. Maybe they're speaking in tongues. Like, we don't know. Like, I mean, that's like, they're speaking Lyconian, Paul, they didn't understand it, but they're speaking this language, they didn't know. For all Barnabas and Paul knew, they were turning to the Lord, right? All praise be to God, from whom all blessings, maybe that's what they were saying. They had no idea. 
Maybe it was similar to Iconian when it says in chapter 14 and verse 1 that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Maybe they were, they were believing and just all this lavish stuff that they were giving upon them was just an expression of gratitude. They come to their city, you'd visit us, we're off the beaten path. Hardly anybody comes to us, but you came. Woohoo! Actually, it's Zeus and, and Hermes who, who came. But at some point, Paul and Barnabas were told, oh, they're dealing kindly with you because they think you're gods. And at that point, then, Paul and Barnabas says in verse 14, right, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they, they tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news to turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And then he explains, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And sadly, then, we see that even with these words, verse 18, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But here was Paul and Barnabas just pouring out their heart before them about their sin. No, 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 it's not it. You've missed it. And constantly we see that when... People bow to an angel. The angels say, no, 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 don't bow to me. Don't bow to me. Only bow to God. And here they were bowing to them. and So they tore their garments as a sign of remorse, being upset. That these people had missed the message and they, they needed to hear the right message. Something Somehow there was a disconnect between what Paul was saying. Because I do believe that Paul was, was speaking and preaching and he was preaching about Jesus even. And, and they weren't getting it. And so at some point, Paul says, right, I need to have this, this gospel reset. I need to understand that when I say God, I may have a vision of the almighty God, right? The, the one who reigns and rules in heaven and has no rivals. And they might be thinking about Zeus, which maybe is closer, but they might be thinking about a God like Hermes or any of the other gods that battled with each other. And so He's got to understand, like, when he says something, it doesn't mean everything that they say. Right when you have communication, right? Here's communication. I have a thought in my mind, and I think it, and I say it to my friend. And my friend hears it in his mind and then forms a thought up here in the bubble, right? And and the problem is when, when Paul said God, his mind was this. And then we got over here in the ear, it was totally different. And, and so he, he, he had to, like, okay, correct this thing. He gets down to the basics. He basically said about us, right? He talked about Paul and Barnabas. He said that, no, man, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We are not divine. We are not gods. We eat like you all do. We drink like you all do. We use the restroom like you all do. Right? We, we, we have uh, problems with the sun like you all do. Right? If, if you'd poke us, we would bleed like you guys do. There's nothing spiritual. There's nothing different about us. We are not divine. But instead, we do bring you good news. It's not about us. But we're bringing good news about, about someone else. We're bringing good news about the God who made everything. Right? Don't follow these vain idols. Right? Don't follow the, the pantheon. Those gods are more like us than they are like the true God. And if you know anything about the pantheon, it's these gods are having all these, these quarrels and squabbles with each other. And the, the Greek mythology is all a story about just these gods that can't get along. And so it's just like humans raised to some spiritual angelic maybe but and not angelic in terms of sinless some spiritual level that they're battling and it explains everything how they created the world it's like that's not like us those are vain things right turn from that and turn to here it is the living god that is the god who who lives and breathes as opposed to even dead idols i mean there, there's a big contrast in the psalms if you if you can read psalms like psalm 135 or psalm 115 or psalm 118 i even Thinks it speaks about that. Just these these idols, they can't speak. They just they just sit there. They have tongues, they can't speak. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have eyes, but they can't see. And if you got to move them any place, as Isaiah forty four, some places says you got to pick them up, oh, and then they're burned for you, and then you put them down. But they can't do anything, as opposed to the living God, who can move and who acts. And has acted. And primarily the way the living God has acted is that He has created. He made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So heaven, that includes all the stars, the moon, right? You can read about that in Genesis. 
Right? In the fourth day of creation, he made all those things. And he, he made the earth. You can read about that in Genesis as well. And, and he made the earth and he made the sea. divided between the, the, the sea and the land. And he, he's, he's made everything. He's made everything that comes on it. God is the one. He's the creator of all things. And you need to understand uh, of, of his creation that he is the creator. If he is the creator, then he rules all things. Just like the potter has right over the lump of clay. So God has total right over us. And you need to understand that if you're ever going to understand sin. If you're ever going to understand the need of Jesus, you need to speak first about God. And I think in our culture, that we have a culture out there that doesn't understand God, that needs to hear a message, right? So when you're in your office this week or when you're with your friends this week, right? Talk to them about God first. See if they understand God first. Because to talk about sin and Jesus without an understanding of God doesn't get any place. And I think that's what Paul is doing. He's like seeing that they're so off. He's kind of reorienting things about who God is. No, he make all things, but he is good to creation. You say, well, if God is God, right, what about all these bad things that happen? He's answered that in verse 16. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. All the bad things that happen, right, all these people that do bad things. Why? Well, it's because God has said, well, he's made the creation. And he said, okay, have your way. (laughs) And they sin. They sin against each other. And so many of the bad things that take place in our world is because of the sinfulness of man, because God has allowed that. He just says, have at it. Yet, even in the midst of that, even in the midst of people rebelling and sinning, yet God has been good to his creation. Verse 17, yet... He did not leave himself without witness, for he did good. God has done good in this world. And how do you do good? By providing for you, not only for your physical body, for your hearts as well, giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He he says this, right? You, You want to think about God, right? Maybe there's a lot of difficult things that happen in this world, but you know what? He's giving you enough food to eat, and he's giving you good times for your heart. I mean, just think about your holidays. I know they, they may have had a Thanksgiving holiday. Just think about your Thanksgiving holiday. What a good holiday that is. Or your spring holiday or your light holiday or, or whatever sort of holiday that you have. The time when you gather your friends. Your friends. Think about how God has given you friends. And your family. Think about how God has given you family. Right? Just joyful times. He has given that to you. Or joyful events. Birthdays or, or weddings or, or celebrations. God has been so good to you to provide these good things in his common grace. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, God makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That's God's common grace of of how good he is to just provide for all of us. And and also then just even talking about creation, about how he's made everything. Psalm 19, right? The, The heavens declare the glory of God. And the moon displays his handiwork, right? Just everything that's there, the glory of God is there to be seen. It's there to be witnessed. It's there to be experienced. And I think that he spoke these things because it's exactly what they needed to hear. They needed to be reoriented about God, who he was. I mean, Lystra is like America. People around us need to hear what God is like. I read an article this week that spoke about uh, America's newest religion. Fastest growing religion is the religion of self. Um, here was uh, six sacred commandments that uh, are, are trending in this new world religion of self. First commandment, your mind is the source and standard of truth. Right? No matter what, it's, it's your truth. That's the standard of truth. That's trending in America, right? It's the second, your emotions are authoritative. Don't let anyone question your feelings. Whatever you feel is Right? You just go with your heart. I mean, is that Disney? Oh, just go where your heart goes, where your heart leads. It's our culture today. Uh, third sacred commandment, you're sovereign. So you flex your omnipotence and you bend the universe around your dreams and your desires. It's what people in America think today. You are supreme. It's another one. You act towards your chief end. Glorify and enjoy yourself forever, right? The first catechism. First question, what's the chief end of man? To, to uh, know God and enjoy Him forever. The, the new commandment in our culture, according to this article, is basically that we need to, right, um, enjoy ourselves forever. 
another commandment. You are the summum bonum, the standard of goodness. So don't let anyone oppress you with antiquated notion of being a sinner who needs grace. He even told last week by someone, just obviously he's not good. He says, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. God, God I, I believe. God, God's okay with me. I'm, I'm good with God. Like, kind of like, there it is. There's a commandment of the standard of goodness is himself. I didn't have the opportunity, nor was it appropriate quite at that time, to say, no, it's not. I hope and at some point I, I will. The long-term relationship I have with my friend. Uh, finally, your creator. Use your creative power to craft your identity and your purpose. Like, these are the things of our culture today. Our culture needs to hear of a sovereign Christ like we sang today. Every inch of this universe belongs to you, O Christ. For from you and for you it was made. That's what people need to hear. It's not about us. It's about the Lord. People need to be reoriented. We need a healthy dose of God that comes from our mouths. So I just say this. If if you don't get God from your mouth, if people don't get God, they won't get Jesus. Because you need to understand that God rules over us before you'll ever understand your sin or need for a Savior. And it's interesting here that, that Paul, in this message to the crowds, in the frenzy, never had the opportunity to talk about Jesus. You see that? Like... He only lifted up the goodness of God, and, and he never got to continue. Like, it's almost as if the, the wave of the music and the hysteria just kept going and, and kind of wiped him out. Verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. And who knows, maybe they didn't even want to hear about Jesus. And they said, yeah, 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 whatever, right? We believe what we believe is right, right? I mean, these... these these things, right? The summum bonum, the standard of goodness is, is themselves, right? Our standard, right? Your God, and those are our feelings, or your God, let's not take them away. And so they just continued on their, their own way. I just encourage you, right? When you're speaking with people, when you're evangelizing people, when you have an opportunity to be a witness for Christ, right? be witness for God. That's okay. Jesus said, be my witnesses, but to be my witnesses, you need to be a witness for God. I told you a few months ago of an interaction that I had with uh, a neighbor of ours. Yvonne and I were out for a walk, and she was walking her dog, and we, we greeted one another, and, and I think, I forget how the conversation went exactly, but she asked us how we were, and I kind of made some kind of comment like, you know, Yvonne and I, right, we're married, we're, we're, we're solving the problems of life is what we're doing. And uh, then I said, quickly after that, and I said, and we know that all the solutions to life lie in Jesus Christ. And at that moment, she turned and said, oh, bringing religion into it. And this was a couple months ago. Instantly hostile to Jesus. And, uh, and uh, over the past few weeks, we've kind of been able to see her on some walks. And we've got to know her dogs. Her dog's name is Marley. So we've got to know that a little bit as we walk by her house maybe once a day. So that would be like five or six times a week whenever we get to walk. And uh, just this week, we had another encounter with her. It was dark outside. And... Um, so I'm not sure it was six o'clock or something like that by the time we got our, our walk on and we got our, our reflective vests going on and we had an, another encounter with her. I don't think she knew that we were the same people, but, but the darkness out in the sky and just thinking about, okay, so how can I, how can I relate this? And she said, oh, how you doing? And, and we had just been talking about the, the stars and the Milky Way and the planets out there. And I said, oh, we're just out here enjoying the, the glory of God and seeing the vastness of it. And she responded, yes, that's good because it shows us how insignificant we are. I'm like, yeah, okay, well, maybe she's got something about God, right? And maybe over the next couple of weeks and months, we'll have opportunity uh, with her. In fact, even recently, we, we found out that like this neighborhood is really, really very interesting. It's, it's like everything that I have dreamed of as a, as a church to be around our neighborhood is that they have these friends in this neighborhood who have been there for 10 years, 15 years. These people in this neighborhood were every Friday night at 5 o'clock. They, they sit there in the driveway. We've seen them. That's why I stopped and talked with them Friday. I stopped and talked with them. They, they sit there in their driveway and they drink their alcohol and they just kind of talk about life. Every Friday at 5 o'clock. And, and this day, it was cold enough outside on Friday that we went into their garage. And kind of they had an open in the garage <clears throat> and a heater there. But they invite us. Why don't you come on? Every Friday, 5 o'clock. And we just, we just drink. We just drink our alcohol. Right? We just drink and we talk. And I'm like, that might be a good chance for the gospel. That's what I'm thinking. Just to go and talk. And I wouldn't drink anything in any way, but it's just kind of an opportunity for them. They've gathered people. They're interested in us and maybe be there. Not to see them as a project, 
but to see, like, rejoice in the good things that God gives them, but to speak with them. And we'll see, and this woman with the dog has been there, is normally there, she just wasn't there on Friday. But there it is, these people are lost, and they need to hear about God. So maybe it might be just like those here in Lystra, tell them about God, and, you know, even with these words, they scarcely refrain the people from continuing on drinking their alcohol in the garage. I don't even know what's going to happen. But that's what the apostles did. The apostles cried out. And then finally here, we see the apostles are cast out. Verse 18, I've read already that, that they're not convinced. They saw their miracle, the theology and legends, and informed them that these were gods. And they're, they're not going to stop their worship. Paul and Barnabas try as they may. The crowds weren't going to be deterred. And, and, and they would have continued on. But then, verse 19, intro the Jews. Then the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Right? You remember Antioch and Iconium, right? The places where they visited. Chapter 13 speaks about Antioch. In chapter 14, we looked at last week, speaks about Iconium. There were Jews here who came to Lystra, maybe following them, or, or maybe you know, they got some relatives there, maybe following after them. I'm not exactly sure. But they came there, and they persuaded the crowds. And they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. Such was the hatred of these Jews from Antioch, and from Iconium against Paul, that they would go and turn this crowd so quickly. And, and so, like, a couple things. What is the hatred of the Jews against Jesus? And I think, secondly, even the fickleness of this crowd. On one hand, they're worshiping these men as, as Zeus and Hermes. And then they're ready to turn so quick. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The, the triumphal entry. Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now, O King of, of David. Yes, come, you are the King of glory. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And just five days later, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. How quickly they turned, just like they turned against Jesus. And so Paul, I think, felt himself in, in good society. But here it was, they persuaded the crowds, and these crowds, like, I, I'm not sure how they, maybe... Maybe they actually showed that he was flesh and blood. Right? Maybe they stripped him off and said, Hey, look, right? this man is a man just like us. Perhaps. And then they stoned him, and they dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. Now, and Paul alludes to this in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 when he speaks about all the sufferings of Jesus. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one, he says, three times I was beaten with rods, and once I was stoned. And right here is when he was stoned, and he was left for dead. And, and it is interesting here also in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 11, he's, he's reminding Timothy. Timothy, by the way, do you know what Timothy's hometown was? Where's Timothy from? Where? No? No? Timothy. Where's Timothy from? Lystra. This is Timothy's hometown. And they didn't have a synagogue. The Jews were probably in minority there immensely. Uh, Timothy had a godly mother and grandmother who taught him the scriptures. He believed in that. But his father was Greek. You remember that? In, uh, uh, I forget where there's second Timothy. We're going to see that. In Acts chapter 16 is where that is. And, and so he is there and he is seeing and he's observing what's happened and he's He's apparently believed from a, a young man. But anyway, in 2 Timothy 3, Paul is writing to him. He says, You know my persecutions and my sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, where you lived. He says, Which persecution I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. This is what it means for God to rescue us. It maybe doesn't mean to take away all the pain. Right? Paul was stoned and left for dead. How can he say God rescued me out of that? You know how? He was made to walk. Just like Paul granted this ability to this man to be able to walk who'd never walked, here was Paul left for dead, able to arise and walk. They stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead, verse 20, but when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up. Paul is walking just like this other man was. And uh, he rose up and entered the city on the next day, went on with Barnabas to Derby. One last point. I, I love this point. When Paul rose up, where did he go? What does it say? He entered the city. What city is he talking about? 
Lystra. He's going right back in there, right? He was stoned and left for dead. How <laughs> he got rid of this guy? Right? And, they, and they left and went back, and all of a sudden, there's this Paul guy again. And who maybe thought, God, oh, he's risen from the dead. God, we're going to worship him now. I don't know what took place, but here's Paul. I think what Paul was saying was, you know what? I didn't finish my sermon. Uh, I didn't get to that part about Jesus, and wanted to come back into the city to finish his sermon so he could tell them about Jesus. What I, I really think happened. Well, there's a story of Lystra. Next week, we're going to look at Derby briefly. We're going to look at Paul coming back home, finishing his missionary journey. These are great stories, aren't they? Very helpful for us. But just let's remember, right, we need to be perceptive, as Paul was, to the culture and to who you're talking about so that what you understand about God gets into their mind so a correct understanding about God hits so they can understand their sin, they can understand the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I would pray that you would give us opportunities for the gospel. And even if people just need to hear about you, God, so that at the day of judgment, they can even look and say, remember when that, uh, that strange guy came into your garage, you invited him in, and he was in there for, for eight sessions with you guys, talking about your life and learning about you, and he genuinely cared for you, and he loved you, and he told you about me, and you rejected me. That was my messenger to you. And, and, and how many opportunities, oh God, we have, I pray you'd put them in our paths, that we would be able to speak with people about you and who you are, that you're the living God, that, that you're the one who rules and reigns over this earth, and you are one who's worthy of our praise. And as we find our satisfaction, our delight in you, oh God, you are, our wor- you are worshipped greatly, and we thank you, God, for Jesus Christ who's come to, to shed his blood on the cross for our sins, we might be made right with you, that though we're sinful in the presence of you, oh God, a oh holy God, we can stand firm because jesus is our righteousness and even when satan tempts us to despair as we sung today upward we look and we see him there who made an end to all our sin and so god i pray that we would have these great themes in mind that we might be able to speak them with others as paul and barnabas were thank you just for their example and their boldness and their courage and their willingness to suffer all for the sake of christ so help us Oh, God, in these things, strengthen us in these things. May we encourage one another in these things. May we press on all the more as the day draws near. Oh, God, when when you come and redeem us and restore us and we can be with you forever. As we read today in our prayer meeting that you are going now, you're building many rooms, that that, uh, where you are, there we may be also as you come and take us to yourself. And so in that, oh, God, we look, we, we hope, and we long for that day. And help us to walk towards that day. Faithful people like Paul and Barnabas were faithful in their missionary journey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.